0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A policing technique that ensnared many Coloradans is unconstitutional.
1: The law enforcement officers, police departments, they have to follow the law just like everyone else. And that means they have to follow and respect the United States Constitution.
0: Then, journalists at Reuters find some of the most powerful leaders in this country have family histories
2: of holding slaves. Part of the impetus of this whole project was education. I think Americans have an incomplete idea of slavery, partly because there were attempts from the very beginning, from the end of slavery, to lie.
0: Reporters on this series also dug up truths about their own families. And why it wasn't predestined that Colorado would land Major League Baseball.
3: Because we had a minor league team playing in a football stadium.
4: I donated my beat-up car to Colorado Public Radio.
3: It made no more sense to
2: repair it again.
4: I didn't think I'd get anything for it on the market, so I was very impressed when I found out the amount it received at auction.
1: CPR's vehicle donation program gets several calls a day from donors wondering if non-runners are accepted. The answer is yes. Totaled or non-working cars sell at auction, and the proceeds support CPR. Get started at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It was the last dance a federal judge has ruled the Kansas two-step unconstitutional. The law enforcement tactic by the Kansas Highway Patrol targeted countless Coloradans. The ACLU of Kansas has been fighting the practice for years. I spoke with legal director Sharon Brett, fresh off her victory. Thank you for being with us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: What is the effect of this ruling?
1: I think the biggest effect is that the court has recognized the constitutional rights of motorists traveling across the state of Kansas every single day. The court has sided with the plaintiffs in all regards and is ready and willing to enter an order that will hopefully change how the Kansas Highway Patrol is doing business.
0: Remind us what the two-step is, was, and <laughs> you know what what you think now will be uh, prevented from happening?
1: The two step is when the highway patrol or any officer that's using the tactic basically tries to end the traffic stop by handing back a driver's license and registration, takes two steps away from the vehicle, and then immediately reapproaches the driver's side window and says, Hey, can I ask you a couple more questions or something to that effect?
0: And this was a Fourth Amendment case in particular. Talk about what you believe the constitutional violations are in this case.
1: We allege, and the court found, that the Kansas Highway Patrol is routinely targeting out-of-state motorists for these traffic stops and detentions, and that they are detaining these drivers for canine sniffs around their vehicles without adequate reasonable suspicion that's what violates the Fourth Amendment. You have to have a legitimate reason to prolong the length of a roadside detention for a traffic stop. And in the case of our clients and the other witnesses that we put on, the Highway Patrol didn't have that legitimate reason. They were doing it just to try to get inside people's cars to search for cash or drugs.
0: Yeah, this doesn't exist without cannabis in some ways, right? Like the fact that Colorado has legalized it and that Kansas has not.
1: I think that's a huge part of this story. And the court recognizes as much in its order. The court begins the opinion by talking about how... Kansas is now surrounded by states that have legalized cannabis in one form or another, whether that's recreational or medical. Kansas stands alone you know, as one of three states in the country that has no form of legalized marijuana. And as a result, the Highway Patrol has gone to great lengths to try to stop drivers traveling across the state that they think are coming from or going to states that have legalized cannabis. And they're performing what amounts to shakedowns of those drivers, roadside shakedowns, to try to get inside their car and find something that they can confiscate.
0: I think the lead plaintiff in this case was a former Colorado resident. Will you just remind us what happened to her and her family?
1: We represented a number of individuals in this case, but uh, one of the groups of plaintiffs we were representing were a man and a wife who used to live in Colorado who had been driving across the state of Kansas in a newly purchased but used RV to visit family in Alabama. And they were stopped, headed eastbound on I-70, and subjected to a pretty invasive, horrible situation by the Kansas Highway Patrol, who thought they were trafficking drugs, despite the fact that their young kids were sleeping in the backseat.
0: When we spoke, but by the way, we spoke some months ago. The, the ruling in this case did not come overnight, did it, Sharon?
1: No, and that's not so unusual. This case ended up being a trial that stretched out over about three and a half weeks in the federal district court in Kansas. And we submitted our post-trial briefing at the end of May. And then now we're getting a ruling about two months later.
0: When we spoke uh, some months ago, we talked about the disproportionality of the Kansas two-step and that people of color perhaps were in greater jeopardy. Can you shed more light on that for us?
1: Sure. We we didn't analyze racial disparities in the use of the two-step or the use of these traffic stops and detentions more broadly. But what we know is that when these types of maneuvers are used against people of color, the situations can often turn very dangerous. Uh, it is no surprise that race relations between communities of color and the police have been extraordinarily fraught basically since the inception of policing in America. And what we talk about when we talk about this case is that allowing the highway patrol to do what it did to our clients is bad, is bad enough. It merits relief. But when we think about how this can play out in hundreds of traffic stops every month, involving drivers of color coming through the state of Kansas. It reminds us of just what's at stake here.
0: Does this have effects then on any other states that might engage in similar practices? I mean, you've talked about Kansas as being unique to some extent, but what is the effect of this perhaps elsewhere?
1: We're hoping that other law enforcement agencies read this opinion and think about what it means for their own practices. This opinion is a very clear repudiation of the idea that law enforcement agencies can do whatever they want without any consequence. The law enforcement officers, police departments, they have to follow the law just like everyone else. And that means they have to follow and respect the United States Constitution.
0: We will reach out to the patrol, but do you expect an appeal? Is this something that might land before the U.S. Supreme Court?
1: I I can't speak for them on that matter. (laughs) All I'll say is that we are happy for our clients and happy that justice prevailed here.
0: Do the plaintiffs get anything financial out of this or like an apology, or is it just the change in the law?
1: Well... Two sets of our plaintiffs actually had damages claims against the individual officers that had detained them. And those cases were brought to trial earlier this year and both resulted in victories. Our second client actually was re- awarded compensatory and punitive damages against the officer who detained him, which means that. The jury found that the Kansas Highway Patrol trooper had detained him with reckless disregard for our client's constitutional rights, which is Mm. a pretty impressive finding from a jury.
0: You have been fighting this then on on multiple fronts, is what I hear you saying.
1: That's correct. This case is about three and a half years old and resulted in three different trials uh, between February and the end of May.
0: Was this a revenue driver for the Highway Patrol?
1: Whenever we're talking about stopping and searching motorists, there's always the question of asset forfeiture. We know that the Kansas Highway Patrol brings in a lot of money each year in asset forfeiture funds and that that can be a boost to their budget, whether they are detaining motorists with the hopes of finding cash or the hopes of finding illegal drugs. Doesn't matter much for the constitutional claims that we were bringing in the case, um, but it's certainly a relevant question to be asking.
0: Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Sharon Brett is legal director for the ACLU of Kansas. You can read the federal judge's ruling on the Kansas two-step at CPR.org. That state's highway patrol has given us a statement, quote, We are carefully reviewing the court's decision and respect the judge's conclusions and recommendations. Moving forward, KHP will continue its endeavor to ensure that our enforcement operations respect constitutional rights and comply with the law. Still to come, how more Americans can come to terms with the history of slavery as family history. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When a Colorado family encountered a Brazilian flower called the toothache plant, they decided to make a liqueur with it. The numbing's coming, though. <laughs> the numbing is coming. <laughs> what did that take, Six, seven, seven, eight seconds? Tingala numbs your mouth and stimulates your taste buds at the same time. The taste test and the tale of the rising Colorado company that makes Tingala, the story and pictures, at CPR.org. How should the U.S. teach slavery? The questions become fraught, and in a special series this summer, Reuters finds many of this country's leaders have ancestors who held slaves members of Congress, presidents, Supreme Court justices, and governors. This series, called Slavery's Descendants, also gave the writers a chance to explore their own family histories. That includes Donna Bryson, who's based in Denver for Reuters. She used to report for Denverite, her sister publication. And welcome. Thank you. It's good to be back. Donna, how do you think exploring your family's history in rural Georgia, particularly your great-grandfather's story, could shed light on how we understand and teach slavery and Jim Crow? Well,
2: I'll go back a little bit to the beginnings of this series, which started with a Reuters colleague of mine, Tom Lasseter, who, like me, had worked overseas quite a bit of his life. He came back to the United States during the George Floyd protest. And he remembers thinking, his sons were asking him, what's going on? Basically, his sons had been born outside the States. They didn't have, I guess, this depth of memory about racism and they didn't have a context for what was happening, what they were seeing on television. And Tom, in trying to answer them, thought back to a visit his father had taken him on Tom's also from Georgia. <laughs> and uh,
0: You've lived, in some ways, parallel lives, both work. journalists at Reuters, both having spent time abroad, and both from Georgia.
2: Both with, with family from Georgia. And uh, Tom remembers his father taking him on kind of a tour of the old farmhouse and pointing to a well and saying, the slaves built that. That memory came from when he was a teenager, and he hadn't thought about it very much since. But he saw immediately, I think, coming back and seeing America in turmoil— That it led back to slavery. As you say, we uh, looked at the ancestry of American notables, lawmakers, and judges, and politicians, with the idea that, as with Tom, having a family connection to slavery made it real. And uh, I think for a lot of African Americans, it's not much of a mystery (laughs) for -hmm. the most part. We understand there's a family connection to slavery, though we may not be able to trace it the way that Tom was able to trace it to names and places. I took part in the the ancestry searching, and in doing that, I would come to the 1860 census. Uh, And that census and the 1850 census were accompanied by slave schedules, in which the slaves were enumerated, often grouped by age, sometimes by color of their skin, but no names. And time after time, I would come up to this and you hit a wall as an African American tracing your ancestry. There's no names. But I did, like I think a lot of people during the pandemic, I had sent away some saliva to Ancestry.com, and mm-hmm. come back with a- uh,
0: My mom and I did yeah, that. Yeah, mm-hmm. came
2: back with a family tree, and uh, they were names that we only got back as far as Harry Bryson, my father's great-great-grandfather, uh, born in 1834, and I can only say presumably in slavery because we don't know anymore about where he was born or, or those circumstances. And
0: this is the part of the difficulty of these journeys: mm. is the record keeping, mm. and even when there are records, even when there are reports in newspapers, say mm. whether you can trust that it's accurate. Exactly. Um, and so I, I gather it is this colleague's recollection of the journey he took then that might have inspired you to do something similar.
2: Well, to get back to your question, what can my family stories tell you? at it tells us that, who's history? That we all, you know, I'm thinking as I was writing this story and working on this story, that our first histories are really family stories and our mm-hmm. first lessons are in the home. And we bring that to the schoolroom at some point. And uh, as an African-American, what I brought to the schoolroom, I wasn't necessarily hearing. I wasn't reading in the history books. I think that's starting to change. We're starting to get a fuller history in the schoolroom. And I think that's maybe where the conflict comes from. Conflict over teaching history because people are hearing things they hadn't heard before.
0: Mm -hmm. And sometimes it touches their own family. And and sometimes it means that they've got to do some soul searching.
2: Exactly. And I I don't think the intention of our work was to say that you bear some kind of ancestral guilt. But it is to say that slavery is close. It's close as family. And that it has an impact on us still. And that it's going to keep coming up. I think one of the people I interviewed in this article was a uh, professor in South Africa where I'd worked for seven years as a reporter. And he's told students talking about South Africa's history, not even that long ago, (laughs) students are telling him in South Africa, they don't want to talk about this. Let's just put this behind us. And he says, we've tried that. And it doesn't go away. It keeps coming up in unexpected ways. And it wouldn't be better to be prepared by knowing
0: Do you think, before we explore more of your own story, uh, do you think that the legislators, the power brokers, you were able to connect, Reuters was able to connect to slavery, were they receptive to learning that, to hearing that, to having that reported?
2: We found about 100 figures, most of them members of Congress with ancestors who held slaves, who were enslavers.
0: And any number who have influence over education— to some degree.
2: And so many questions that come up today. Affirmative action and reparations and uh, how many times do we have a news story that refers to the 14th Amendment? 14th Amendment ended slavery. Uh, And it still plays a part today in who's a citizen and what do we consider the basic rights? A lot of people talk about that period as the second founding. And uh, if we can go to the first founding, you know, 1776, and draw lessons from that. I think we can certainly go to the second founding and draw lessons from that.
0: Hmm. How receptive were these power brokers?
2: Most of them did not want to engage at all. Uh, Some people issued statements, only a few wanted to do interviews. The one interview that that I got to do was with a representative from Southern California, which is where I grew up as well, uh, Julia Brownlee, who I found to be very thoughtful. And I think Though she said she hadn't known about her slave-owning ancestors, she had figured there probably were some. She grew up in Virginia in in the family that sent her away to boarding school when her small town desegregated. And she says that only when she got to college, went to college in D.C., what would become Georgetown, only then did she realize how badly she'd been educated because she'd had this uh, segregationist education. And she wanted to talk about how she had grown uh, had become uh, a liberal Democrat who was also very interested in education. And I remember when we were talking, I was delineating what we'd found out about her slave-owning ancestors, including that one was a child. One of the slaves being held was a child. And she was really affected by that. You could see that. Uh, it seemed like a, a very natural reaction for someone who's been involved in educating children and in advocating for children. I think she really understood, again, how close it was. Part of the The impetus of this whole project was education. I think Americans have an incomplete idea of slavery, partly because there were attempts from the very beginning, from the end of slavery, to lie about its consequences, about uh, its impact on human beings, even about whether it was the cause of the Civil War. So in a lot of ways, Americans are coming out of deliberate misapprehensions and deliberate lies about slavery. And again, that makes it harder harder to have conversations about it in school.
0: On the subject of deliberate lies of history that has been misunderstood, I want to talk about your great-grandfather, G.G. G. Bryson. This is in Georgia. Mm-hmm. He died at age 68 from what was listed as heart and kidney disease. But that doesn't jibe with what your dad knew to be the case, so to your own personal journey, what, what was the reality?
2: In the, the record of death, which gave his cause of death as heart failure, heart kidney disease, I found that as we were working on this story, and when I showed it to my dad, my dad kind of snorted with disbelief. He said, you know, that, that's just not true. He had heard that his grandfather died before he was born. Uh, again, this record shows maybe it was about the year my dad was born, but he was a baby, so <laughs> we'll give him that. Uh, as he had understood it, my great-grandfather, Gigi, had a store, had a garage, helped build the Baptist church and for the black community, was a pretty prominent person. And for that reason, my dad thinks, you know, came to the attention of of racists, of of white people who saw him as competition. And uh, as he understood it, some men came to the store, dragged my grandfather out, tarred and feathered him. And my great grandfather died of those wounds from being tarred and feathered, not from heart disease. Or kidney disease. Or kidney disease. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, in trying to find documentation for what my father had been told by by his uh, parents and other relatives, I started to understand how difficult it is. Again, you, the slave schedules without any names, but a lot of um, the history of African Americans has not been recorded. Has been recorded falsely. There have been attempts in pretty recent years to document lynchings, and I consulted a book called By Hands Now Known, which was an attempt to document lynchings, but that author who, you know, a, a university professor who had researchers at her disposal was able to document many that had not been documented before, but again, not all. Part of her research was in the NAACP records, and which I followed her into those archives, and one, reading about what they were able to document could be uh, shocking and, and grievous to do. And on the other hand, also reading about the people at that time talking about how frightened witnesses were and how likely it was that things were happening you know, in the 30s and 40s were not being recorded.
0: Yeah, You give numerous examples of deaths similar to your great-grandfather's, violent deaths that weren't accurately documented.
2: Mm-hmm. So it was no surprise in the end that I wasn't able to document what happened to him and uh, left with my father's stories.
0: But it it is fascinating to me, then, that how can we possibly, even with the intention of learning our history, do so if all of the sources that we rely on for that are not telling us the truth?
2: The... uh, It's all of the sources include our family. (laughs) And uh, I feel my father has told me the truth and the context, you know, that I can do the research and not see the documents. That's part of the context. Mm -hmm. I know that things were left out.
0: Yeah. The missing is information. Mm, Yeah. At about the same time your series was published, the International African American Museum opened in Charleston, South Carolina. This is a city where, according to the Washington Post almost half of all the slaves brought to the United States were sold. The Post calls the museum ground zero for slavery. Can one take hope in the existence of a museum like that?
2: A museum like that? The attempt by the advanced placement by the college board to include a new African-American history project. One of the historians I spoke to while I was writing this story says that there's we can't go back. There's... Too much that's known now. Too many people have learned these lessons and are talking about them. You can't unerase, but you we can't go back to the lies. And I do I do think that's the truth.
0: And yet, there's resistance, though.
2: Mm-hmm. I think a lot about what the resistance comes from. I think there's probably some fear there. There's. Um, Just feeling uncomfortable. We don't. We want. Don't want to feel uncomfortable. We think the best way to not feel uncomfortable is not talk about things that are uncomfortable. But as my uh, South African professor told me, and as my own child says, (laughs) that uh, all we are is memory, and these, the impact of memory, is just going to keep coming back. So we need to be prepared.
0: Yeah, the story ends on a stirring note—a discussion with your 19-year-old child—and I'm wondering. How much of this story was written with Tandy in mind?
2: It was reported with Tandy in mind in a way. I had grown up hearing these, overhearing these stories from my father, and he grew up overhearing these stories. And it was a chance for Tandy to overhear them. But when we went to San Diego to interview my father, talking about things that we had talked about, but getting them as a reporter, getting them in my notebook, I asked Tandy to come along and to record it. And Tandy recorded it, overheard but also intervened, I think, wisely. In what way? In calling out this idea that all we are is memory. A combination of our own (laughs) and our ancestors' memory helps make us, and it can't be put aside. It can't be, uh, and it'll keep coming up if you try to put it aside.
0: Again, the idea for this project comes from one of your co-workers, a reporter, Tom Lasseter. Uh, again, also grew up in Georgia after living overseas, returned in 2020, barely two weeks after the murder of George Floyd in Minnesota. And it was sitting in church on Juneteenth that Lasseter asked himself a question. Had this country ever truly reckoned with his history of
2: slavery? Is there a bit of irony that a white man got this off the ground? Well, it's it's our history. Slavery is white history and black history. And maybe that's one of the lessons of this too. We tend to, I remember as a school child, it seemed like we only spoke about African Americans when we came to slavery mm. and that that was their history, but it's it's all of our history. And that's one thing I think this makes very clear.
5: After
0: Lassiter found a connection to one of the slaves his family owned, he struggled with whether to make amends for the actions of his ancestors. Is that something you'd want if you discovered a descendant of the people responsible for, say, your great grandfather's death? Would you want to hear an apology from several generations on?
2: No. No. The uh, and amends, I'm not quite sure what that would even entail. My mm-hmm. father is of the generation and of the cast of mine that there's. it's almost um, insulting to talk about how you could repair that harm. Mm-hmm. But an acknowledgement, an acknowledgement going forward, I think, is uh, probably the best we can do.
0: Well, speaking of acknowledgement, I do want to talk about your time in South Africa Mm -hmm. as a journalist and how that relates to the story that you wrote for Reuters in this series. South African Bishop Desmond Tutu chaired that country's Truth and Reconciliation Commission following apartheid. Uh, You covered some of those hearings almost 30 years ago as a foreign correspondent. Can you see something like that happening in the United States?
2: You know, I covered the very first hearing and wanted to get an idea of what I might hear that day. And I just kind of went door to door in, in a uh, black area of town, in a township. And every door I knocked on, someone had a story about the atrocities of apartheid. And again, I was saying earlier that our first history lessons are at home. <laughs> so these, um, these stories are known what is missing is the uh, a national acknowledgement uh, mm. and an understanding that in some cases we've been lied to. And I'm not sure we could pull that off in the U.S. so long after the fact, but that is what has been proposed in D.C. When people talk about the reparations bill in D.C., it's not a bill about divvying up the money or determining what reparations will be like, but of having this conversation as a starting point. It's basically a commission to, to talk about it. I'm not sure where it will go from there, but I think that's what was happening in South Africa, a starting point of acknowledgement.
0: There's this discussion in California, a task force, I think, proposing these sorts of conversations and perhaps some reparations as well.
2: Mm -hmm. And in other parts, other local discussions. The discussions are happening, I guess, goes back to the historian I spoke to in Georgia who said there's no going back. (laughs) I do think that's where we are.
0: And what do you make, then, of the resistance that is framed as, why dredge up the past? Why not move forward? Why spend our time that way?
2: I think African-American families like mine have been moving forward all along with the knowledge Moving forward doesn't mean forgetting or pretending that it didn't happen, but carrying it along. And,
0: that and is, it's not, it, it is not anathema to progress, to take stock of what happened in the past.
2: Yeah, that's exactly. And the uh, you know, for me, these stories are also about kind of the heroes. My grandmother, my father's mother, who was a teacher and who um, lived through a horrific time, and but always believed in being frank and understanding the world around you. And and moving forward. Moving forward doesn't mean that. How can you move forward without any roots, right?
0: Donna, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Donna Bryson who's based in Denver for Reuters. She contributed to the recent series, Slavery's Descendants, which we'll link to in today's podcast at CPR.org slash Colorado Matters. We'll be right back on CPR News. Hey, it's Vic Vela from CPR's podcast, Back from Broken, returning for season four. More stories about the highest highs. That moment changed my life. The darkest
4: moments.
2: I started itching violently. And
4: what it takes to make a comeback. Admitting to somebody that I need help took way more strength than a physical action. Back from Broken. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.
5: With support from Step Denver.
0: It was a momentous
2: day. So I'm here to congratulate all of you on the work you've done and to tell you officially that uh, at 10.40, it was a mountain standard time. Mountain daylight time, you became uh, officially uh, a
0: member of the National League. The announcement July 5th, 1991, took less than a minute. The Colorado Rockies franchise was a reality after a decade-long campaign filmmaker and former Nine News anchor Kyle Dyer tells the story in her new documentary, When Colorado Went Major League. And Kyle, welcome to the program.
3: Oh, so happy to be here. Thank you. The home
0: opener took place roughly two years later in April 1993. The very first Rockies hitter, second baseman Eric Young, gets a home
2: run. A very pleasant afternoon, albeit clouding over just
3: a bit.
5: the 3-2 pitch. When I hit it, I didn't get all of it. But I think when I hit it, 80,000 people stood up and carried that ball over the fence.
0: Coors Field hadn't been built yet. The Rockies were playing at mile high. So many people showed up. There was concern whether the fire marshal would let everyone in. Why do you think there was such an appetite for baseball in Colorado at that point?
3: We had minor league baseball since the time practically Colorado existed. And the old Bears and Zephyrs games would sell out. There was an appetite for baseball like we can't imagine because we weren't here, right? Mm-hmm. And then the push to convince Major League Baseball that this is a city that needs a Major League team. It was an act of Congress even to convince Major League to expand by two teams. Yes. But really to convince people in New York to be making the decision who would get a team was a galvanized effort of people right and left of the aisle in the State House, Suburbs, inner city, people came together. So I think on that day... It was one, people just wanted a major league team. And Mm. two, people wanted this major league team. You know, they worked so hard to convince the powers that be. The
0: powers that be, lots of different powers. Now, not to put a damper on this, but the Rockies haven't exactly taken the world by storm since. They have made it to one World Series in 30 years, which they lost. Uh, This year, as last year, they have one of the worst records in all of baseball. You do not address that in the documentary.
3: Why not? This is when Colorado went major league, figuratively with a team, but also when we became a major league city. Could you imagine what Denver would be like if we didn't have what's at 20th and Blake to spur business growth and lower downtown? Would we have a Rhino? Would we have all these other neighborhoods offshooting? Would we have business? Would we have restaurants? Would we have companies wanting to move here? I don't, I don't know. Mm. It really is the story about how community came together to make this happen, but then how our city, our state, and our region are forever changed. And yes, it's a baseball movie, but it's a movie about community and the platform that for that storytelling is baseball.
0: Well, to the long campaign to get Major League Baseball here. In the 1980s, the league was under a lot of pressure to expand, but wasn't doing it. Enter a U.S. senator from Colorado named Tim Wirth. This gets at what you mean when you say a literal act of Congress. Um, What does he do at this point? He told
3: me when he got reelected to office in 1986, he was thinking about, hmm, what issue should I be focused on? And he thought, Major League Baseball. So the great story was he said there are a lot of other senators who wanted baseball for their cities, for mm. their states. So they made up this Senate task force for Major League expansion. They made letterhead, put all the senators' names down the left side, had hearings, talked with the Major League commissioners. There were three different ones during the time they were trying to make this happen and really got Major League to say, OK, we'll expand. Sounds like a good idea. We'll pick two teams. But then what will those two teams be?
0: Two teams. Yeah. And don't they use, like, antitrust as kind of the bully pulpit?
3: Yeah, there was some of that going on, too. But I, I think with Ubroff when he was in charge, uh-huh, he MLB. really did a lot of pushback. And then Bart Giamatti came in and was like, OK, this makes sense. And then Bart Giamatti died and Faye Vincent came on board and said, yes, let's just make this happen.
0: Now, was Denver any sort of shoe-in for one of those two slots? No,
3: I don't think so, because we had a minor league team playing in a football stadium. Right there (laughs) (laughs) is like, you know, the only time people would see Denver on the news is when it was a snowstorm and the airport was snowed in. The economy had gone through the tanker when there was the oil bust in the 80s. There were more people moving out of Denver than moving into Denver in the late 80s. Uh, We were leading the nation in foreclosure rates. It was not... A great place to be like, yes, let's give you a franchise. Plus there's,
0: you know, that weird time zone we're in that no one outside of Mountain seems to understand, Kyle.
3: We were a time zone without a team. Uh From Kansas City to L.A., there was no team. Oh, interesting. More and more
0: of Colorado's civic leaders get involved. Uh, They certainly saw the economic development potential that you have uh, hinted at there. The league indeed said it would expand, but, you know, they said you've got to have a stadium. That's that's one of the provisos, one of two big provisos. We'll get to the other one. Where did the money come from for Coors Field?
3: So after the SCFD tax passed, there was a man named Neil Macy who So died. that's
0: the tax that pays for arts yes. and
3: science. That passed in 1988. Yeah. And first he, of its kind, I think. First of its kind, and he's a big baseball fan and gone to a lot of these major league meetings where they said you have to have a stadium. He thought, well, if people will give one cent for every $10 to a museum or a zoo, maybe they do it for a new stadium.
0: And this is Neil Macy.
3: Yes. So he went to the statehouse, which was conservative run. People did not want any more taxes. But he found one Republican representative, Kathy Williams from Adams County, who said, I see the greater good. I will sponsor this bill that would then create, if passed an opportunity for the six-county metro area to vote on this tax. Basically, we would tax ourselves. So it was not supposed to pass the state legislature because of the times we were in, Mm -hmm. and a lot of people thought a tax is a tax is a tax. But it did. And then it was not supposed to pass the six-county metro area because of the times we were in. Did not pass in Denver. Did not pass in Adams County, where Kathy Williams was from. But passed so much in the other four counties that we got a team. Well, we got the yes, And that's the yes was what was needed. Uh Uh-huh. So Major League, we are committed to building this team. Now, if they had said, forget it, Denver, then there would be no tax.
0: I am amazed that this didn't pass in Denver. I know. Did that surprise you?
3: Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. A lot of things surprised me in this story. John (laughs) Hickenlooper, we interviewed our senator now, who was one of the very few people in the 80s to open a restaurant in downtown Denver with the Wincoop Brewery. Yeah. He didn't want it in lower downtown. He did not want a baseball stadium.
0: Why? But what did he tell you? He
3: said he, you know, you look at football fans coming out of a game all drunk, or basketball fans, and I don't want that in this neighborhood. We're creating a, a lower downtown, which is restaurants and a neighborhood. And he says, "I was wrong." Amazing. I was
0: wrong. The beer brewer didn't want drunk people. Okay, okay, Mister Hick and the other catch, right, is that there has to be someone to own the team, a roughly $95 million investment. So Governor Roy Romer sets up a committee, holds a meeting for anybody who might be interested. Here's Steve Kadish, director of the Denver Baseball Commission, describing that gathering. For anybody that's seen the original Star Wars where there is that bar scene where they have people from all these different planets that all look very different, that is the way that I remember that meeting because it was so odd, and nobody knew who was gonna be there, and nobody knew what anybody was gonna say. Kyle, that really encapsulates for me a theme of your film. Nobody knows quite how much this is all going to cost, whether voters would approve, how it's all going to work. It was kind of fly by the seat of your pants
3: to some extent. It was. And they were constantly told, no, it's not going to work. It's not going to happen here locally. Also, you know, from major league executives and these organizers, these people in this community said, we don't care. You know, the man who was the architect of Coors Field was 28 years old. Steve Kadish was 29 when he'd had that. They were young people that think, well, why can't we do it? Mm -hmm. You know, as you get older, you think about all the reasons maybe something won't work. This group of people did not. They thought, well, we'll just figure it out. We'll just figure it out.
0: I don't know. It seems a bit like Denver could use some of that right now. Absolutely. Do you think?
3: I think so. Yeah. You know, in speaking with former mayor Federico Pena, he hopes, and I, I think it comes across in the film, that this will inspire people. He's like, look what we did. It was something great. What's the next thing? What's this next generation here in Denver going to do to elevate our city even more? Who got the
0: second team, by the way? It was us. It's Miami.
3: And Vinny Castillo, one of our Blake Street bombers in that first team, he said in that expansion draft, he was hoping Miami would pick him because he's from Mexico and he was afraid of coming here and playing in the cold. (laughs) But now he loves tubing. He raises, he's still working with the Rockies. He loves Colorado in the cold weather, but he was afraid of the cold.
0: Okay. An ownership group does surface led by an Ohio millionaire named Mickey Monus. And all of a sudden there's a problem. With Mona's. Tell us about that.
3: Well, at first there was no problem. He had a lot of money to the table. We had to have $95 million. He was like, hey, I got 30 And nobody really knew much about him except that he had $30 million. He ran a string of um, pharmacy chains in the Midwest. A hundred days before the very first home opener in April of 93, he was indicted on racketeering and fraud charges. Basically, he was cooking the books for his business back in the Midwest.
0: We're talking just about three months from the first pitch. Oh, yeah. Oh, 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 yeah. Yeah.
3: So again, another, oops, uh, what do we do now (laughs) kind of thing. I mean, the challenges were great. So uh, there was the late attorney, Paul Jacobs, basically bought the shares from him for like 24 hours or something crazy like that, maybe 48, until he could secure Jerry McMorris. Orin Benton and Charlie Montfort, who were limited partners at the time to take on the general partnership and basically save the day yet wow. again. He like
0: holds it yes. for a tiny period yes. of time
3: to buy himself time. Yes. And that's why we have the team. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what if they hadn't pulled that off? It would have fallen apart between this and then the Olympics when we turned down the Olympics. Who knows what Colorado would be like now, what opportunities we'd have, right?
0: Course Field was paid off in less than 10 years, about half the time predicted. So the, and the tax was renewed by voters, I'll point out. So there was like extra money coming in. Where did that go, Kyle?
3: They reworked things in the state legislature and built what is now the, the football stadium in power, but you know, at the time. so the, the, we basically, the new and improved mile high. The new and improved mile high. Yes. So we got two stadiums basically with one tax. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's close with a little bit of Rocky's trivia, how the construction of a stadium, uh, we're talking about Rocky stadium, is connected to the mascot, Dinger.
3: So there was a night, Ray Baker, who was in charge of the stadium district at 10 o'clock at night, got a phone call, said, hey, we found bones. And he was like, what? <laughs> and he's like, of course we did. They right? say just bones? Just like, a they're construction not... worker found bones. So he's like, but they're like, they're, they're not human bones. Okay. So actually, it's surprising. It was only maybe a two-week delay because you would think like something like finding a, you know, dinosaur (laughs) remnants would hold everything up. But the Denver Museum of Nature and Science came out, examined them. And I'll tell you, Ryan, it's not a beautiful thing that you'd see on exhibit there. There are little bits of a rib from a triceratops that are in the size of an iPhone box behind the scenes at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. They're, they're that small. So the fact that a construction worker had the wherewithal to be like, whoa, what is this, uh, boss? Um, I think we have something here is amazing. But apparently I, I've learned, I've learned uh, a lot about dinosaurs through this, that there are a lot of construction projects in this area in the Front Range the dig where out. people are in, on the lookout for mm-hmm. if we see anything funky, you know, calling someone to check them out.
0: And thus Dinger.
3: Dinger. The dinosaur. I know. People make fun of him. And I'm surprised how many people didn't know that story. I mean, I moved here in 96, and I knew it was because they found dinosaur bones. But really, to find the story behind it, I guess there were also, it was found right by, the remains were found right by the um, the home team dugout. Uh So there are people that wanted it. Dougie.
0: (laughs) I love the dugout, and the digging is perfect. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kyle, thank you so much for being with
3: us. So fun. Thank you.
0: Filmmaker and former 9 News anchor Kyle Dyer produced when Colorado went major league. You can watch the documentary on MLB.com slash Rockies, on the Rockies YouTube channel, and on 9 News Plus. Finally today, swing music grew out of both jazz and blues, and it is very much alive in Colorado. CPR arts reporter Eden Lane has this profile of the Flatirons Jazz Orchestra.
5: Visit the major dance halls throughout the Front Range or some of the festivals, celebrations, and weddings in Colorado, and you may hear a traditional 18-piece big band devoted to the great dance music of the swing era. In Colorado, the music was nurtured by Glenn Miller, who began his musical exploration in Fort Morgan, and Benny Goodman, Louis Armstrong, and Duke Ellington performed at Elitch Gardens and the Rainbow Music Hall from the 1930s until the 1960s. Fast forward to 2014, a group of Colorado musicians formed the Flatirons Jazz Orchestra to keep music lovers swinging.
4: Well, let's see, there was a guitar player and a bass player and I, we were hosting an open mic night at a little nightclub in Longmont that ran for 60 consecutive weeks.
5: Orville Ray Wilson, also called Sticks, is the drummer who helped start the band.
4: And we would put out a book and anybody that, you know, wanted to sit in had to write down their name and their email and their phone number. We realized, wow, we have, we, we've got a couple of hundred names here. You know, we have this list. So, you know, we sent out an email saying we're starting this new project. And our first rehearsal will be on January 11th at this little music in the back of a retail strip mall in Longmont and 11 people showed up and that was the start.
5: Deborah Stafford was in the Boulder Big Band with Wilson when they branched out to start the Flatirons Jazz Orchestra. She says while this band is busy, she still enjoys it. It's really fun having that many instruments in back of you. It's just really powerful. And it's a wall of sound. the a wall of sound, <laughs> yeah. And you know, you have to, I mean, you have to have a strong voice to be able to do that. Yeah, I've been obviously been doing it for 23 years now. So yeah, I figured out how to, how to sing with the big band. Patty Shaw, the only other female member of the band, plays lead alto saxophone. For nearly 40 years, she was a radiology tech, but now that she has retired, she plays music full time. So, I'm finally doing what I really love and enjoy. It's lively, it makes me always in a good mood, and our band is like a family. We all really love one another and, t- and care about each other, and we have fun making music together.
0: My own personal history is I've kind of lived a big band life. I fell in love with Glenn Miller and Benny Goodman in sixth grade. And I ended up, I got a degree in Saxon performance.
5: Recruited to join the band in 2016, Doug Rasmussen now also serves as the musical director.
0: So I got to play with some of the swing era folks before they passed in the early 80s. I've always loved big bands and I've been playing in big bands since junior
5: high. <laughs> A major point of pride for the band is authenticity. Wilson says they do deep research to keep their music sounding just as it was meant to when swing was king.
4: These charts are all tightly arranged. Five saxes, four trombones, four trumpets, piano, bass, guitar, drums, and a singer. And we strive to recreate the original sound of the original artists through Callington, Count Bass, Deep Manny Goodman, Miller, Stan Kenton, Jane Krupa, Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday. The middle of our time zone is about 1945. And so we try to track down the original charts uh, that match the original recordings made by those artists and cover those as closely as we can. The band also uses arrangements
5: done by one of the founders of the band, tenor sax player Stan Persk, and a few new charts by Rasmussen.
0: I did an arrangement of the Jackson Five, I'll Be There.
5: Oh, (laughs) So we'll see how
0: that goes. I mean, we do focus on kind of the 40s thing, but we try to keep that style. The whole
4: goal is to keep people dancing. And that's one of the real strengths of this band, is that um, we go right from song to song to song. People don't have a chance to leave the dance floor, and then they all leave happy.
5: The Flatirons Jazz Orchestra plays a monthly Sunday swing at the Buffalo Rose in Golden and regularly takes their show on the road across the state. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News.
0: And I'm Ryan Warner with thanks to my swinging colleagues Tyler Bender, Carl Bielich, Anthony Cotton,
4: Pete Kramer,
3: Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle
5: Fulcher,
4: Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris
0: Ketchum,
5: Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield.
0: You're with CPR News and KRCC.